Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. Hey there, this is episode 229. Something new starts today. That's right. A new series of interviews. This time, our guest is Chris Williams. He's a developer relations manager at HashiCorp. You might know him from his work with V Brownbag. In this first part of the interview, we'll share some things you might not know about Chris. He was a gamer who got a job in technology unexpectedly. We'll hear about Chris's experience as an enterprise architect. What exactly is the job? What do you do in it? And how does a background in psychology make you even more effective? Chris has some ideas to share with us. We'll also talk about riding technology waves, especially one of the most recent ones as of the time of this recording, which is the rise of generative AI. How does that affect what you should be studying and learning? And what does that have to do with a T-shaped engineer? What exactly is a T-shaped engineer and how can you become one? We've had some guests share things about startups and working in a startup. What was the experience like? Chris is going to share his experience working at a startup and how it taught him when to say no. Sometimes when we record these interviews, we crack each other up. And this particular interview was no exception. We left in a couple of funny parts where we were cutting up together, but didn't want to put in too many in the actual episode so as not to take away from the content. But if you'd like a little Easter egg and hear us do a bit of a blooper reel, listen all the way to the end, past the outro music for a couple of stingers, which I hope will make you chuckle as much as they did us. Here we go with part one of our discussion with Chris Williams. Chris Williams, welcome to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for being on. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? We probably know you from a couple different places, but uh, if you could let us know, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Chris Williams. I am currently uh, a developer relations manager for HashiCorp uh, for, the, for the North America region. I have been a podcaster and AWS hero an enterprise architect, a solutions architect, and a VMware V expert. Wow. That's a lot of territory to cover. <laughs> I like I like to spread myself out. Yeah. That's a broad range of expertise. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into technology? 
So I am one of the non-traditional technologists who got into it by by hook and by crook. Um, I was a avid video game player for since forever. Um, my, my first computer growing up was a Commodore VIC twenty, um, and I was I've been playing video games literally ever since. When I was in university, I was a pre med student, and my roommate was a CS major. And he and I would play Doom together. One night after, and I had networked the entire dorm room together. I had a, I went out and I bought an eight port hub, which was obscenely expensive at the time. And I wired us up. I had a 486 with a math coprocessor and we were playing Doom and I figured out how to like network everything together so we could kill each other. His proctor, the CS proctor, came into the dorm room one day and and we had like invited all of our friends over. And so all of his buddies came over and we had like all eight ports filled and we're all, you know, playing Doom against each other. The proctor for the computer science department came into the room and saw what I had done. He congratulated my roommate, Tom, on how well he networked the entire room together. And Tom, my roommate, said, no, 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 that was that was Chris, the pre-med guy over here. And so the university hired me to rewire the entire computer department. Um, so I so I quickly got my CCNA. I, I um, figured out how to work a router and how to work switches, and and then the rest is kind of history, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it was video games. Video games were the way that the reason why I I got into this gig. Oh, Chris, I, I hate to break it to you, but uh, played video games and and networked in, in college is actually the typical, uh, typical story. <laughs> Tale as old as time. You know, what? every, every, everybody, that's how Chris, that's how it happens. CS degree. That's like the, that's like the one percenters. No way. Pre-med. That's like code for future IT pro. So I, I did actually get out with a psychology degree after, after I talked to the, to the CS guy and, and, we decided that I was going to help out. I went to my proctor and I said, what is the closest degree that I could get out of university with that I could just like take a couple more classes and get out? Because I was, I was in my third, third and a half year at that point. And, and we looked at all the classes and, and what I had tallied up at the time. And he was like, the closest thing that you can do, just get out of here is psychology. I was like, sold, done. <laughs> so so I, I became a psych major. And did you nice. find it interesting or did you just not care a whole lot for it? I'm curious. Psychology mm-hmm. or, or psychology or, yeah. or everything. Uh, you know what? I, I love everything. I love all kinds of learning. I still have a subscription to psychology today. I, I still read the JAMA. I just, I just absorb articles. I, I still love all of those different topics. IT was the topic that kind of called to me at the time and I was I had the most facility with primarily because of my background in games. I mean, you know, wiring stuff up and trying to figure things out and pulling out motherboards and by proxy I was I was the kid that dismantled the toaster and you know irritated my parents. I dismantled my first 386 and <laughs> put it back together again and thankfully it, it continued to work. And so I was always trying to play with and sort things around. So then after I finished wiring the networking department, excuse me, the computer department for the university together, I then went on to build gaming rigs for a local software company. Not, not excuse me, not a software company, a, so- a software sales place that sold like, you know, you go and get a video card or a soundboard back in the day. And, and so I was, in the, I was the guy in the back assembling systems for customers. Oh, that's so cool. Now, did you have to 
make recommendations to the customers in any way? Or was it 100% you're just back there working on orders? Even back then, I was both pre-sales and post-sales. I would I would walk the customer through like the list of, oh, no, you definitely do not want this video card. It's, it's going to be bunk. Um, you want this soundboard, you want, you know, this motherboard, you want this much RAM, you know, back when 16 megs of RAM was an obscene amount of RAM, well, you know, back in the day, um, I would, I would walk them through what they are like, what kind of game do you want to play? Okay. Well then let me, this is the hardware that you're going to want to get. And then I would go back in the back and build it. 3d pinball on <laughs> the windows box that we had at our house that you had to launch MS DOS mode for to play. I just loved that game. <laughs> battle chess all those all those old original systems yes i had i had a um an amiga an amiga 2000 and i was the only person in my user group that had two three and a quarter inch hard drives uh, fl floppy disk drives so that you could both write and read at the same time so i was the copy machine i would i would like copy everybody's cracked games con and convert them for for other friends and stuff i've been in user groups for a very long time now, how did you find out about those user groups at the time? Because it wasn't like you could just go to an online forum so much. Well, this was when I was living back in Germany. And the um, I was living on an American military base. And uh, Ramstein Air Force Base had... A, it's a very... It's a small community. It's a small community of Americans living in the middle of Germany. So everybody kind of knew everybody. And so if somebody found out anecdotally that somebody had an Amiga with two, three and a half inch floppy drives, holy mackerel, they would come to your house and say, hey, come come to our user group and and help us, you know, copy disks for the next five hours. And then I, I'd, <laughs> I'm like, what? Okay, sure, why not? As long as I get a copy too. They're like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It wasn't through a magazine or a newspaper or anything. I didn't actively look and go, hmm, what user groups? I was, I was what, 12? Uh, what user groups are in my area? <laughs> yeah, stateside, you'd be going to a computer store and buying a copy of a computer magazine, or there were these giant catalogs for every single like clone PC reseller and their offerings and stuff like that. There used to be this amazing series of books that it was an, it was like a it was before choose your own adventures came out and it was a programmer's fiction novel where you were like the son of a spy or the son of son of a your dad was a spy and you were a computer genius and they would in the story have snippets of code basic you would write basic into a file and try to run it and it wouldn't work. And then you had to debug it to figure out what was wrong with it. And when you debugged it properly, you got the right page to go to the next section to successfully continue on the adventure. And uh, that was, that was my first foray into coding too. That sounds amazing. It, it was so cool. And I wish there was something like that today, but kids would be like, they'd fall asleep trying to do that. <laughs> <laughs> kids these days. Mm. They just want to play games. What's wrong with them? I know. Why? Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> so you started, you went to the computer shop, you worked in pre-sales, post-sales, build all kinds of things. When did we, when did you get your first foray into like being a, a customer that worked in a little bit larger environment? So I got my, I was at that shop and I got my MCP and my MCSE while I was there because everybody was trying to get their Microsoft certifications at the time. After I did that, I then started working for a local solutions integrator, a local SI. I forget the name of it, ABC. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was a company that would basically 
do professional services consulting to their customers. Oh, you need somebody to come in and like fix a computer. Well, here's here's Chris. And and that was that was my first time dealing with quote unquote customers, like like paying customers of the technical shop that I was hired to be, you know, like a, a service guy. I would I would drive out with my little bag of tools and fix their server or their laptop. I did like OS2 warp upgrades to Windows. It was a uh, this was and this was in Alabama. So I worked at the paper mills, which were very stinky. I worked at um, the shrimp processing plants, which were also very stinky. For it. so that was that was my first real job, I guess. Did they send you to all stinky places? Is, that, <laughs> is it possible that that's why they hired you? Considering what a rotten employee I was, probably. They're, yes, give Chris, Chris, give Chris the stinky jobs. I totally <laughs> would see them doing that. No, they weren't. They weren't all stinky. I met some wonderful people during that stint. There's also the perfume shop. You never sent me to the perfume shop. No, yeah. it, was, it was either stinky or not stinky. Nothing smelled, okay. nothing actually smelled good. What about the communication skills between you and these customers or people you were helping? It seems like maybe the average gamer doesn't always have that side. That's That's my take. I agree. And I think that the thing that I accidentally did, the psychology degree, I think that that genuinely helped me a little bit when I transitioned over into IT and tech. Because as part of, of the graduation process, I had to do a couple of rounds. I did. I specialized a little bit in conflict resolution. I was helping custom, couples work through their problems with each other, how to communicate more effectively, how to get in there and actually say the thing that they want to say, and then make the person say back what they thought they heard. and by proxy, I learned to communicate more effectively. And I'm by nature, I'm kind of an extrovert. So I like getting out there and meeting new people anyway. Most people that get into computers don't. They're not, they're not like us. or They're not the ones that are going to approach you and go, hey, you want to come on our podcast? That's, um, <laughs> we're, we're a little bit of an anomaly, aren't we? A little. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny you say that because I've been going to some podcast meetups and everybody's like, they want to talk to you, say hi, ask about your show. And it's not it's not always the same at a technology community user group meetup. <laughs> you nope, you nope. oftentimes have to sit next to somebody and really try to pull it out of them. Hey, how's it going? What are you working on? You know, that's a good idea. A podcast meetup. I didn't even think about that. A, yeah. a meetup for people that are interested in podcasting. I should do that myself so that I can work on leveling up my V Brown Bag game. There you go. Meetup.com. Mm. Went to one last night. R- really? Th- thanks. <laughs> <laughs> search for your area. I only I only use it literally every day for the pug and for the Boston user group and all the other user groups. I never even thought about it for that. That's brilliant. Thanks, Nick. Hey, no problem. One of the best things about these shows, this and V Brown Bag and, and other shows that we do, is I learn so much auxiliary information from folks. Not just the thing that we that we came on to talk about, but like all the cool side things. Like the 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 Python lady with the with the death core husband. <laughs> so that's just that's just fun. I, I went down the deathcore rabbit hole because she started sending me Spotify stuff of of things that her husband has her husband had worked on. Yeah, I mean it's not my cup of tea, but it's definitely interesting. It was just interesting you said you specialized or had studied conflict resolution mm-hmm. and it just is something that has come up a bunch of times when I've done interviews. Have you ever witnessed two work coworkers having a conflict? Or have you been asked to break a tie when two people can't come to an agreement about something? And I've never had a really satisfactory answer. 
I think I ended up at the uh, kind of bargaining and compromise. Then I was presented with this conflict resolution model. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know why nobody's ever mentioned this before. (laughs) (laughs) As an EA, as an enterprise architect, I was constantly trying to figure out ways to have people come to resolution from conflict. As I started off in my career earlier in the days, it was it was pure tech. It was, okay, I got my MCIC, now I can like install Windows and you know, then I can wire servers together and then I can build data centers. Then I can migrate data centers and virtualize them and then I can move them up to the cloud. But the higher and higher I got, the more time I spent in boardrooms interfacing with directors and SVPs and C's and everything, I stopped using the technical stuff and started leaning more and more back on the old psychology chops of, of just getting people to get along together till the point where as a as a very senior EA at Worldwide, it was 95% people and 5% technical. Literally, I was I was the director of DevOps for a, a streaming company. Very, very fun gig that, that Worldwide put me on for an for an interim project. And it was letting people talk, letting other making sure that other people listened. And then coming to consensus and and having people like you know come to the table with an with an open heart and empathy. I did not. I didn't use a single. I, I learned a lot from a technology perspective. It was it was a very heavy heavy DevOps shop, but I just left that for everybody else. I was just trying to get make sure that the right voices were being heard at the right time. And so it was one hundred percent psychology, zero tech. What made you want to be an enterprise architecture, and what is the job for somebody who? doesn't really know what that is. I mean, you described it a little bit. So there's there's like a solutions engineer and that's the person on the keyboard and they're and they're doing the things that need to get done on a day-to-day basis. Then there's the solutions architect who is who is designing the pieces that then get assembled and built by the solutions engineer. And then there's the enterprise architect that sits across a broad swath of solutions architects and makes sure that the implementation of the technological pieces map to the actual business drivers of what that company is trying to fulfill. So it's a very, I'm not going to say it's a niche area, but it's a very balanced area where you have to be able to speak to CFOs and CTOs and CIOs and engineers and architects and directors. And you have to have the ability to understand what their drivers are, what their KPIs and OKRs and all those other acronyms are, and what the engineer cares about and what the architect cares about and what things they're trying to do in their day-to-day and how that translates into what the bean counters need and what the CEO is trying to push up, pull across it from a vision perspective. And, and then work with a project manager to make sure that that all gets finished at the, in the right amount of time so that, you know, paychecks can still get paid. <laughs> so in a nutshell, that's what an EA does. That's fascinating. I've never heard it described that way. And that's, uh, that's very, very useful to understand. I think that people often say enterprise architect when they mean solution architect. And to be perfectly fair, those titles are interchangeable depending upon how big of a company you're working with. Sure. The enter- the enterprise architect for a 50-person shop is significantly different from an EA that works in a $17 billion organization. Yes. They're 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 different roles, different responsibilities. They they care about different things. It's unfortunate that you can't say enterprise architect and then everybody immediately knows what that's that and that's that's part of the 
problem when I get in, injected into a new company. Oh, this is Chris Williams, Enterprise Architect. Everybody in that room might have a different vision of what an EA actually is and means. So when I get introduced to a new boardroom, the very first thing that I do is I say, does everybody know what an EA is? And then they all say, yes, of course, of course they do, Chris. And I'm like, okay, this is what I think an EA is. And then, and then we spend the next 45 minutes disagreeing with each other and, and then until we, until we come to consensus. And then we agree that this is what we need Chris Williams EA for company X. I can't name companies, but you know, company X mm -hmm. needs to be, and that's, then that's what I become. But it's because I get buy-in from everybody right at the get-go. So in those situations, you were acting as almost an EA for hire being matched up with company X as part yes. of working for worldwide technology. Yeah, EA would rent, um, WWT would rent me out as an EA on the different projects that they were fulfilling for their customers, which were all of the Fortune 100s. That's a really interesting way to get a very broad range of experience across many companies. Dude, that is the most fire hosiest of fire hoses that I've ever, I was an FTE for a very long period of time. A, a, an FTE is a full-time employee. For like the first 15 years of my career, I was an FTE. I would go into a company. I would do the things. I'd get bored after about two years. I would automate myself out of a position and just sit there and like read comics until I, I got bored enough that I would move on to the next job. I switched over to working for VARs, value-added resellers and, and strategic solutions integration companies, VARs and SIs. Uh, I want to say when, when I left Kronos and then I moved to Green Pages. When I, when I got into Green Pages, a buddy of mine had convinced me to go work there and I was afraid of it. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to like it. And he's like, you're perfect for this, Chris. And if I had listened to him 10 years earlier, I would have done it 10 years sooner. It's a new company every three to six months. It's new people. It's new technology stacks. It's new everything. And I, and I love learning. Like if I wasn't doing this, it's Friday night right now. If I wasn't doing this right now, I'd be studying up on Terraform. Uh, me and one of the other AWS heroes just finished doing a, um, a PyPy commit to, to an open source project. I would be, or, or I'd be playing Diablo 4. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> so, so I love learning and it, it, it scratched an itch for me because it was, it was, fast. It, it came at you like full throttle. Some people don't like that though. My best friend, Mikey, he wants to be in one company for the next 20 years and he wants to deal with five technologies and, and he's perfectly happy that way. And he thinks I'm bananas for the way that I like to move around from company to company. Different people like different things. Exactly. And I think that working for an organization, the way that you were talking about is a great way to work for one company and also move around. Yes. And people don't know that you can do both of those things. And if you don't like the company that you're working for, it's going to change in three to six months. And right. if you love the company you're going to work for, it's going to change in three to six months. So it's a, <laughs> but, but you meet tons of new people. My LinkedIn profile, my connections in there is like from all of, I'm a really, really good human router now because I know a lot of people in a lot of different industries and verticals, uh, medicine, healthcare, financials, um, all, all over the place. So if, if I've got a friend that is looking to break into a new gig and a new career and a new vertical, then I can usually hook him up. The proverbial uh, connector, I think is what Malcolm Gladwell calls it. There are a lot of people out there to do it way better than I do. Amy Hermes and Sabrina Schaefer are two names that come to mind. You guys should get them on here. They are amazing human beings. I super love them. Okay. Always looking for good guests, for sure. I'll hook you guys up. Totally. Awesome. That, so that begs the question, if somebody wanted to get into a role like that, 
how would you recommend that they prepare as opposed to how you did it? Yes, that's actually a really, really good question. Being a good EA requires an understanding of a lot of different stacks in the, in the technology. You have to have a, a depth and a breadth. So it, a, a T-shaped engineer is somebody that has, or a T-shaped architect. Are you guys familiar with the term? You've got a the, the top band of the T where you have a general, under, a light understanding of a lot of different topics, but then you've got the, the one vertical line for like a deep understanding in one topic. I am a T-shaped EA. Am I, do, do I even know anything anymore? I probably don't. I'm, I'm just, I'm just a, I'm just a lazy eye now at this point. I don't, I don't know anything really well. No, that's not true. Get good at one thing. Find, find the thing in technology that you want to get good at. Is it networking? Is it operating systems? Is it, is it DevOps? Is it, is it development? Do you want, do you want to learn a, a programming language? Get good at that one thing and then branch out from there. Learn how things interconnect with each other. I started with networking. And by by virtue of that, I then went from networking to servers being networked. And then the back end of servers w- with storage. And then, okay, then I went to databases and became a DBA. And then I just kind of like started tacking more and more of the technology stack to the point where I now have a full mastery of literally everything in the technology stack with the exception of development. So now I'm learning Python. So you you have to start one place, start one place and then branch out from there after you've grasped it and have a really good understanding of that area. Then then you can move out. There's this fear that those of us who are generalists have about developing that deep expertise in an area and feeling that it pigeonholes us in some ways. You have any thoughts on that? I think that generalists are far better suited for the climate today. Well, the climate, the climate at any point, a specialist technologist, I feel is, is very much a, a pigeonhole thing. So like if you're really, really good at Fortran, how many jobs are you going to get out there that are available to you? Now, granted during, during, um, 2000 and Y2K, there was, there was a lot of COBOL and Fortran programmers being paid obscene amounts of money, but that was niche. Um, as a generalist, you can transition from one role to another role. Like I started off as a sysadmin, like networking and then sysadmin. And so I have a broad understanding of, of the stack and how things work. If I wanted to become a junior developer right now, I probably could do that. I could probably pivot and, and start something there. If I've spent my entire life doing Linux kernel optimization routines to the exclusion of literally everything else, you know, if, if all of a sudden for some reason Linux stopped being a thing tomorrow, then... I, I wouldn't wouldn't have a gig. Or Chat GPT figured out how to do that for you, right? Exactly, exactly. I think we've we've still got a, a long way to go before that happens. But I think I think a new role that has been spawned as a result of that is become is becoming a prompt engineer, learning how to ask the right questions of an AI, how to how to get that mid journey string perfect so that a really good picture comes out, how to ask the right questions so that you get good information and not a bunch of garbage. I keep on hearing that that is, has become like the new hot role, but I don't think I've ever seen a job listing for prompt engineer. Am I just looking in the wrong places? Or maybe it's just, it's not listed as prompt engineer. It's, it's a four month old technology. The recruiters haven't figured out the word yet, much less how to actually, <laughs> how to scan for it. I, I've come up with prompt engineer, but you know, who knows what they're going to call it. I see prompt engineer all over YouTube as like a... Here's the hot new role and and I'm, oh, do you really? Oh, yeah, yeah, that exact phrase, prompt engineer. 
Maybe you can copyright it before anybody else does, Chris. Mm. Nah. nah. TM, TM. I probably heard it from somebody else. It's fine. (laughs) I'm just kind of wondering if it's going to be a skill that you have to have in your portfolio, kind of like effectively Googling for something. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I I think that it's going to become a vital skill set. There was a funny picture that I posted on Twitter recently, and it was a 1940s or 1950s picture of a woman holding up a punch card, like an old-timey computer punch card. And underneath it, the meme said, compiler's going to come take our jobs. (laughs) There's always going to be something. There's always going to be some new technology, and then there's going to be a disruption in the... (laughs) in the environment. And then, and then there's going to be new jobs that come out of, come out of it as a result of it. I'm glad that cracked you up so much, John. (laughs) Yeah. He totally lost it on that. Oh, I had to mute myself. That's so funny. For, for those only listening, John just went purple laughing so hard. Yeah, he really did. That's a good point though. We've talked to different people who caught sort of the beginning of a technology wave and they were able to ride that to some totally new, better endeavor that furthered Mm -hmm. their career as a result of catching it early, probably a combination of luck and investing in the right skill set with the right technology at the right time. When I saw cloud coming out, I'm not going to say I was like some kind of uh, Svengali or something like that, but I started getting into AWS, not in 2006, but, you know, earlier rather than later. And I had been a V expert for a number of years. My, my entire career had been based on VMware ever since GSX2 or, or something. You know, I, I, I saw my first exchange server that was the virtual machine was split across two actual pieces of hardware. And then they flipped the actual bits from one to the other. And we didn't, and you only lost a ping. I was sold. I was like, this is, this is the future. Abstracting the operating system from the hardware was, was magic sauce for me in 2004 or whenever that was. And then I, no, not 2004. It was way earlier than that. Whenever, whenever it was. And then I went, I saw that I purchased my AWS account, my free, my free tier account. I was studying for my solutions architect associate and I started playing around in the console and, and I was like, this is the death knell of my VMware career. I, I could, I could see it plain as day. The first time I logged into the console, I was like, I'm, I'm done. I, I don't know how many more vCenters I'm going to have to log into, but the countdown has started. I'm still a V expert and I still run, you know, I still do stuff on V brown bag with VMware folks. But I have not myself personally logged into vCenter in probably three or four years. To the, to the point of the, you know, the compiler lady and the Fortran programmer, those roles are going to still be available for a very long period of time. Fortune 100s are, are not going to pivot and move away from VMware anytime soon. Um, some of them are going to keep it on-prem for, uh, like, there's a certain defense contractor that's never going to move away from it because they have a program that has to be sub five milliseconds. And so they can't move anything to the cloud for, for particular applications. So there's always going to be a need for it. It's just not going to be as ubiquitous as it used to be. Sure. And there's probably businesses that are concerned about keeping their crown jewels, you know, that IP, not having a gold copy on-prem, right? And, and I, I don't blame them. I, I am also a server hugger. I still have a quarter rack in my basement that I, that I have a, an old super server on. I've got, a, I've got a Synology NAS that I have linked up to it via NFS. I mean, I've still got all that stuff in there. I still, I still play with it. I just don't play with it nearly as much as I do my AWS account and in all of those things. I think it, it kind of speaks to moving up the stack to a certain degree, right? Yeah. Like those things are 
super important. And I think that what you're talking about is kind of saying this entire technology stack is super important and it's amazing because on top of it, X runs. Yes. Right. So maybe if you also go up and say, I'm going to learn about X, as well as going down a level and saying, well, what is the thing that I was doing, you know, dependent on? So the the layer below and the layer above in that feels like what you were talking about when you're saying like kind of getting wider at the top of the T. I was extremely fortunate to be born at the time that I was born because I was the first generation of kids that was that were steeped in technology. Like my 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 Vic 20 when I was seven years old. That was a piece of hardware on my desk and I got it and I was able to tear it apart and understand it very, very well. And it's just gotten more and more complex and more and more abstracted since then. But I've always understood it fundamentally to be the four basic food groups, RAM, CPU, network, and and uh, disk. And as long as I break it down into the four food groups, I can pretty much understand and grok any virtualized abstract abstraction layer that's out there. I'm, I'm seeing new technologists, people new to the industry now that have no comprehension of speeds and feeds, and they don't think that they need to care about it until they do. Why isn't, why isn't this application running as fast as it is? Well, you've, you've pegged out this bus. What's a bus? Well, or you got the lowest tier storage and you needed really performance storage. Right. Or, or you, or you put NICs in there that only go up to 10 gigs and you needed a hundred. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a number of things it's all it's all interconnected, and if you only just care about software, or if you've spent if you were born with an iPhone in your hand, there's there's a layer that you're not that you have to do a lot of historical archaeological digging for to really understand why things are the way they are. I I just can't imagine that archaeologists get paid that much. <laughs> so, so you're <laughs> they don't you're really depressing me. So does that mean that enterprise archaeologist is a role that we should shoot for? EA. That sounds like a fantastic, yeah, another EA. Another EA, yeah. As enterprise architect, but what about the enterprise archaeologist? Maybe they're the same. Fun, fun aside, um, I actually worked for a, a well-known gaming house with a well-known football franchise, and I was, I was the EA at EA for, for, a, for a stint, and that was super fun. It's in the game. It's in the game. That is hilarious. I think we skipped some steps. It's kind of a cool home base to come back to. I feel like we were talking about when you first got into kind of what we would recognize now as formal IT mm -hmm. and then started doing that, going deeper, going sideways. What what did that process look like for you? So at that first company, the, the first company where, where I was being rented out, that was me going to different companies that they were paid to take care of. I would go to the one person and I'd work on Novell. And then I'd go to the next person and do a Windows upgrade from OS2 Warp or whatever. Then I would move on to the next company and do do something else. I then moved into working as an FTE for for larger and larger companies, and and like I said before, you know, getting bored after two years and automating myself out of a position, scripting scripting a bunch of things, and then and then moving on to the next thing. Then then I started working for a startup. The startup was where I learned where to say no and what my breaking points were and how to actually tell somebody to get stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> How did you come to realize those breaking points? Like, th think about it this way. If I'm someone who needs to be more aware that I'm getting close to that in a world where 
because of things like pandemics and the after effects, a lot of people are a couple clicks from just set everything on fire, I quit. Oh yeah. No, no, hundred percent. The the startup that I worked for at the time, and and this is a very, very extreme version of what happens in other companies, it caused uh, three nervous breakdowns, two divorces, and one suicide. Uh, it was it was bad. It was a meat grinder where eighty hours a week was the norm. And if you got and then if you had that pager, then then you were up all night every night. And you could tell who had the pager because they had the bags under their eyes. I stuck that place out for about four years, and then afterwards, I realized that it wasn't worth it. I, mo- I mo- moved on to another position that was a really bad move, but I had to do it because I needed to get out of there. And then after that, after that, I moved quickly to a different place. And then I wound up at Danone Yogurt, and it's a it's a French multinational company with French benefits and French vacation and and all of that stuff. And I realized in the juxtaposition between an American startup and an and a European country company, what it means to actually like you know treat your com- customers and and your employees and your other humans that you work with well. And with empathy and with consideration. And so I respect the time that I did at the startup. I would never do it again. But if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't have gotten to the point in my career now where I am, where I understand what I will and what I won't put up with. It is interesting to work at a place where you get people really caring for you and having a positive employee culture and being able to contrast that with previous experiences. There's a bunch of different ways to be good and a bunch of different ways to be not so good. And sometimes you just have to experience them to understand what it is that you will and won't put up with, the things that you'll seek out and the things that you need or the things that would be really nice to have. Yeah. And I think it's different for everybody. I probably put up with more than I should have. And I know of other folks that are far younger than I am that are what I would consider to be old souls that, that wouldn't have put up with that at all. It's, it's just a matter of, you know, where you are in your life and what, what drivers and what pressures you have outside of yourself. Or do you have a new kid? Um, you know, do you, there's, there's, a, there's a number of things that, that can cause you to make the decisions that you're making and, and for, you know, for good and for, and for ill. Yeah. It's interesting. We've had people on who've worked for startups and it seems like the universal thing that they they've mentioned is having a lot of work to do and being asked to do a lot of different things especially things that weren't necessarily in their job description hey we just oh, yeah. need somebody to be able to do this and oh, there's yeah. just not a lot of people here but that grinding make maybe almost abusive work culture is not universal. It's not necessarily inherent to startups. No, no, it's, I'm, I'm not going to say all startups are evil. The reason why I do like startups is exactly that is because you're touching a lot of things that you normally wouldn't in, in the position that you're in. I believe I was a um, solutions architect or a systems, ar- a systems admin there, but I was also a DBA. I was also a baby programmer. I was also a, a guy dealing with finances um, there was there was a lot of different things that I had. I, I did some HR stuff. I was my first time where I was actively doing interviews for the interviewing process to onboard new employees. I was doing new employee training. Everybody was you know all hands in to to make things happen, and that's kind of like where I I get my get stuff done mentality now. 
is and and why I'm a good EA because when I find out what the business driver is, when I finally get that information, I then drive towards that and I I make people get out of my way to to do it, which can irritate some people too. I'll be honest about that. I want to come back to the interview thing, but it, it seems like you can't always see how bad this situation you're in is until you are outside of it and think back yep. on it or 100%. your scenery changes or in some cases, like when we talked to Scott Egbert recently, his wife pointed out, you don't have any joy when you talk about your work. Did anyone in your family or friend community mention anything that they noticed that was different? My wife noticed that I was drinking a lot more. That was part of the the impetus for us to get out of that. It's it's a it's a complicated story. I mean, every every new company has has its own things to to take into consideration. My particular story was that it was um, it was a small company. There was a very demagogue type leader uh, who who gathered the folks around them and and made everyone believe in the story and the journey. And so, it, not only not only did I have to get out of a company, I kind of had to get out of a little toxic family kind of thing situation. But but you're absolutely right. You have to you have to abstract yourself from that, remove yourself, and get out to, before you can go. Oh wow, that really was bad, wasn't it? It's it's so interesting that you say that because a little bit about being in a startup is buying into a vision. And if a small company which is trying to achieve large, large, fast growth is being run by a leadership group which doesn't have a strong vision that they're publishing and driving and getting people to buy into. It's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, it feels like that would be very difficult for that organization to succeed. But at the same time, it's so easy for that to flip into cult of personality, right? Yes, exactly. And is it about the people and not about the vision anymore? You you nailed it right on the head. Um, some founders are great up until a certain point. And then they need to have the insight, wisdom, empathy, knowledge of themselves to then say, okay, I was good for this for the first sprint. Now I need somebody with a different mindset, a more process oriented or, or less cult of personality, you know, still be a cult of personality, but be, but have a smaller sideline role while somebody drives it to a, to a, a different size, you know, one, 1 million to 50 million, 50 million to 500 million, 500 million to a billion. All of those are entirely different companies with entirely different needs and processes and types of people that need to be in the right places at the right time. More problems that come with scale, not just the scale of your yeah. technology environment, but the scale of your people environment and yeah, process environment. Exactly. People, process, and tools. Those are the three things that every company has to keep in mind. There's the four food groups when it comes to compute, and there's the three food groups when it comes to organizations. I think what you're talking about with founders kind of reminds me a little bit about, oh, geez, I'm trying to remember the model. I think it's trimodal IT, like the settler versus the town planner, settler, and pioneer. Pioneer. There was an episode of Geek Whispers on these three things. Oh yeah, yeah. Simon Wardley is what it goes back to. So was was that a, a question or a statement? You've hit upon the the John White interview problem, where John White just makes a statement without a question mark at the end. Please ask your question in the form of a question. 
<laughs> he was just he likes to do that to feel people out. See, like let's see what Chris does with this <laughs> spinach. Do you like it? What? No, it sucks. Well, you just have to stop at spinach. Like spinach. <laughs> that reminds me of spinach. Tell me more. <laughs> no, I I think that what I was trying to say is that there's the the founder model where they might work really well trailblazing you know being out on the bleeding edge doing a lot with a little getting people to buy into a vision of the future mm-hmm. and that's different from when you have your f- medium-sized group that's along there with you kind of in that settler phase where you're it's not the wilderness anymore mm-hmm. now you have a group of people who are trying to build something and that's also very different from the town planner where now you need somebody to kind of preside over organized growth in with very traditional needs. When you start, you're like in that scrappy anything go startup mode where, you know, you, you that server has to be up and, and you're going to do whatever you can, whether it's a horrible technological decision or not to keep it up, it's going to stay up. But when you're on the very far end of that, when you've got to have a lot of process in place to even make one single change. Your change velocity does slow down, but your ability to keep stuff up increases dramatically because you become more fault tolerant. And there's mentalities and mindsets that are more prone to one than the other. Yeah, you can't be employee number 24 and on the first day ask, like, how, you know, what's the schedule of the change review board? Exactly. So, how about that next transition? Well, wait, wait. Can we ask about interviews first? Because he said he was interviewing people. Let's let's dig into that for a second. Okay. Oh, yes. What's the question? So, <laughs> so the question is, you mentioned that at the at the startup, I believe you did a lot of different things with interviewing people and HR things. How did you learn to interview people? What are the types of skills you needed to have to be able to do that effectively and sniff out good candidates? thinking about the startup founder as someone who needs to be matched to the needs of the organization, whether they be a pioneer, a settler, or a town planner. I really like that idea. And I think it probably correlates fairly well to what John Nicholson talked about in episode 226 and the risk tolerance of some of the startup founders. Perhaps if someone is really a pioneer, they have a very high risk tolerance. And maybe you can find that out, as he mentions in that episode. After hearing what Chris has to say, have you thought about becoming a T-shaped engineer and getting a good deal of depth, but also a lot of breadth? I like how he says, get good at one thing and branch out from there. As you're thinking about the one thing to get good at, certainly it needs to be something that's really interesting to you. It needs to be something that is relevant, relevant in the job market today. And you probably want to make sure that there are some adjacent areas you can hook into should you go deep in that one area. 
And as John mentioned in the episode, thinking about one layer above and one layer below in the stack of dependencies. If I decide that I'm going to go deep on open source software development, for example, and just start contributing to open source projects, write a lot of code, I probably need to make sure that I can troubleshoot performance problems too. I might need to know more details about operating systems and networks and storage, or at least some more base knowledge of them than I might have if if I just started focusing on open source contributions and no other element in that realm. We also heard Chris share a really interesting career that maybe some of our listeners didn't know was a thing. So he worked for Worldwide Technology and worked for Green Pages, and he was essentially a project-based employee. So he was full-time for those companies, but he was rented out and he would work with the customers of those companies for a specific amount of time, three to six months. As Chris mentioned, a new company every three to six months. That's really a dynamic type of role. You're not in the same environment even every single time you're working a project. It's different people. It's probably a different technology stack. Problems may be similar, but they may be at different scales even. And all this exposure to different companies, different organizations, different political waters, different processes really gives you a large body of knowledge to draw from and a lot of experience. If you're someone who gets bored easily, like Chris mentioned, maybe a role like that is for you. Maybe you need to look into some kind of consulting gig or work for a consulting firm or some kind of some kind of role like this where you get to work with a bunch of different customers. Maybe that's not something you want to do. Maybe you want to get really deep in one specific environment. So you need to be a full-time employee of a company and work in a specific department with the same people for, for a while. So you gain deep expertise just in that area. You have to pick the one that suits your personality the best. And you're going to know what you like and what you don't like. If you like the consistency of being in the same environment for a little bit longer periods of time, Maybe that's not for you, but it's something at least you now know about. Notice the emphasis that Chris had on the fact that an enterprise architect may not mean the same thing everywhere. So read those job descriptions if you're applying for something like that. At a very large company, it may mean something very different than at a smaller company. And I like how he level set with the people he was helping as to what an enterprise architect is and should do for whatever project they were working on. That's probably not a bad idea for all of us to take into account when we're working on a large project. What is my role in this project? What is the scope of what I'm going to do? How do I need to help in this situation? And really laying that out from the beginning. Do we always think about that before we enter into something that maybe isn't formalized with project management techniques or a formal scoping for some kind of services engagement. It's a good idea to think about that. If you're going to be working on something long-term, how are you going to help with this effort? How will it change over time? How deep are you going to go when you work on it? Well, I hope you enjoyed part one. As you can probably hear in some of the endings of this, We're going to pick up part two with some things that Chris learned when he started interviewing people at that startup. 
Until next time, we'll see you then. And don't forget to stick around for the stingers if you want to hear those at the end of the theme music. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at BJourneyman, for Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Sounded like uh, Danone had active culture. I see I'm really sorry, did. guys. With, with really probiotics. <laughs> you are so proud of yourself, John. <laughs> and you, you like slowed down and set it up and everything. That was great. A full minute. I was waiting to say that. All you had, all you didn't have, was the sunglasses to put on and then peace out <laughs> off the side of the thing. <laughs> Cue the music. Thank you, everybody. Good night. <laughs> Am I going to do better than that tonight? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but we can leave that party in because that was 100%. 100%. 100%. I'm always here for a good dad joke. You need to be the virtual machine and not the hardware. Is that what you're saying? You have to be the Lambda function. You have to wait. No, that, no, that doesn't work. Sorry. It's another abstraction. <laughs> yeah. Just need to but be the analogy not falls here. It wasn't nearly as good as culture. That was that was primo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which food group are you eating from when you do interviews? Funyuns all the time. <laughs> I, I can eat my body weight in funyuns. They're so delicious. I remember that if I need to prep to interview somebody. Every time Kim goes to the grocery store, what do you want? Funyuns. I don't know why I'm on a tear on them for some reason. That's no. That's a perfect snack if it's a if it's a virtual interview. <laughs> Not physical. <laughs> yeah. If you're in person. If you walk in with that yellow bag, uh, that's that's a bad day. <laughs>